Chapter Twenty Four, Section One of Capital, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Capital: A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume One, by Karl Marx. Translated from the Third German Edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Abeling, and edited by Friedrich Engels. Part Seven: The Accumulation of Capital, Chapter Twenty Four: Conversion of Surplus Value into Capital, Section One: Capitalist Production on a Progressively Increasing Scale, Transition of the Laws of Property that Characterize Production of Commodities into Laws of Capitalist Appropriation. Hitherto we have investigated how surplus value emanates from capital. We have now to see how capital arises from surplus value. Employing surplus value as capital, reconverting it into capital, is called accumulation of capital. Footnote: Accumulation of capital, the employment of a portion of revenue as capital. Malthus, definitions, etc. Edition Casanova, page eleven. Conversion of revenue into capital. Malthus, Principles of Political Economy, second edition, London, eighteen thirty-six, page three hundred and twenty. End note. First, let us consider this transaction from the standpoint of the individual capitalist. Suppose a spinner to have advanced a capital of ten thousand pounds, of which four fifths, eight thousand pounds, are laid out in cotton, machinery, etc., and one fifth, two thousand pounds, in wages. Let him produce twenty-four thousand pounds of yarn annually, having a value of two thousand pounds. The rate of surplus value being one hundred percent. The surplus value lies in the surplus or net product of forty thousand pounds of yarn, one sixth of the gross product, with a value of two thousand pounds, which will be realized by a sale. Two thousand pounds is two thousand pounds. We can neither see nor smell in this sum of money a trace of surplus value. When we know that a given value is surplus value, we know how its owner came by it, but that does not alter the nature either of value or of money. In order to convert this additional sum of two thousand pounds into capital, the master spinner will, all circumstances remaining as before, advance four fifths of it, one thousand six hundred pounds, in the purchase of cotton, etc., and one fifth, four hundred pounds, in the purchase of additional spinners, who will find in the market the necessaries of life whose value the master has advanced to them. Then the new capital of two thousand pounds functions in the spinning mill and brings in, in its turn, a surplus value of four hundred pounds. The capital value was originally advanced in the money form. The surplus value, on the contrary, is originally the value of a definite portion of the gross product. If this gross product be sold, converted into money, the capital value regains its original form. From this moment, the capital value and the surplus value are both of them sums of money. And their reconversion into capital takes place in precisely the same way. The one, as well as the other, is laid out by the capitalist in the purchase of commodities that place him in a position to begin afresh the fabrication of his goods, and this time on an extended scale. But in order to be able to buy those commodities, he must find them ready in the market. His own yarns circulate only because he brings his annual product to market. As all other capitalists likewise do with their commodities, but these commodities, before coming to market, were part of the general annual product, 
part of the total mass of objects of every kind, into which the sum of the individual capitalists, i.e., the total capital of society, had been converted in the course of the year, and of which each capitalist had in hand only an aliquot part. The transactions in the market effectuate only the interchange of the individual components of this annual product, transfer them from one hand to another, but can neither augment the total annual production, nor alter the nature of the objects produced. Hence the end use that can be made of the total annual product depends entirely upon its own composition, but in no way upon circulation. The annual production must, in the first place, furnish all those objects, use values, from which the material components of capital, used up in the course of the year, have to be replaced. Deducting these, there remains the net or surplus product, in which the surplus value lies. And of what does this surplus product consist? Only of things destined to satisfy the wants and desires of the capitalist class, things which, consequently, enter into the consumption fund of the capitalists. Were that the case, the cup of surplus value would be drained to the very dregs, and nothing but simple reproduction would ever take place. To accumulate it is necessary to convert a portion of the surplus product into capital, but we cannot, except by a miracle, convert into capital anything but such articles as can be employed in the labor process, i.e., means of production, and such further articles as are suitable for the sustenance of the laborer, i.e., means of subsistence. Consequently, a part of the annual surplus labor must have been applied to the production of additional means of production and subsistence, over and above the quantity of these things required to replace the capital advanced. In one word, surplus value is convertible into capital, solely because the surplus product, whose value it is, already comprises the material elements of new capital. Footnote. We here take no account of export trade, by means of which a nation can change articles of luxury, either into means of production or means of subsistence, and vice versa. In order to examine the object of our investigation in its integrity, free from all disturbing subsidiary circumstances, we must treat the whole world as one nation, and assume that capitalist production is everywhere established, and has possessed itself of every branch of industry. End note. Now, in order to allow of these elements actually functioning as capital, the capitalist class requires additional labor. If the exploitation of the laborers already employed do not increase, either extensively or intensively, then additional labor power must be found. For this the mechanism of capitalist production provides beforehand by converting the working class into a class dependent on wages, a class whose ordinary wages suffice, not only for its maintenance, but for its increase. It is necessary only for capital to incorporate this additional labor power, annually supplied by the working class in the shape of laborers of all ages, with the surplus means of production comprised in the annual produce, and the conversion of surplus value into capital is complete. From a concrete point of view, accumulation resolves itself into the reproduction of capital on a progressively increasing scale. The circle in which simple reproduction moves alters its form, and, to use Sismondi's expression, changes into a spiral. Footnote. Sismondi's analysis of accumulation suffers from the great defect that he contents himself, to too great an extent, with the phrase conversion of revenue into capital, without fathoming the material conditions of this operation. End note. Let us now return to our illustration. It is the old story. 
Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, and so on. The original capital of ten thousand pounds brings in a surplus value of two thousand pounds, which is capitalized. The new capital of two thousand pounds brings in a surplus value of four hundred pounds, and this too is capitalized, converted into a second additional capital, which in its turn produces a further surplus value of eighty pounds. And so the ball rolls on. We here leave out of consideration the portion of the surplus value consumed by the capitalist. Just as little does it concern us, for the moment, whether the additional capital is joined on to the original capital, or is separated from it to function independently, whether the same capitalist who accumulated it employs it, or whether he hands it over to another. This only we must not forget, that by the side of the newly formed capital, the original capital continues to reproduce itself, and to produce surplus value, and that this is also true of all accumulated capital, and the additional capital engendered by it. The original capital was formed by the advance of ten thousand pounds. How did the owner become possessed of it? By his own labor and that of his forefathers, answer unanimously the spokesman of political economy. And, in fact, their supposition appears the only one consonant with the laws of the production of commodities. Footnote. Le travail primitif à quel son capital ou de sa naissance the original labor to which his capital owed its origin. Sismondi, 1st C, edition Paris, page 109. But it is quite otherwise with regard to the additional capital of two thousand pounds. How that originated we know perfectly well. There is not one single atom of its value that does not owe its existence to unpaid labor. The means of production, with which the additional labor power is incorporated, as well as the necessaries with which the laborers are sustained, are nothing but component parts of the surplus product, of the tribute annually exacted from the working class by the capitalist class. Though the latter, with a portion of that tribute, purchases the additional labor power, even at its full price, so that equivalent is exchanged for equivalent, yet the transaction is, for all, that only the old dodge of every conqueror who buys commodities from the conquered with the money he has robbed them of. If the additional capital employs the person who produced it, this producer must not only continue to augment the value of the original capital, but must buy back the fruits of his previous labor with more labor than they cost. When viewed as a transaction between the capitalist class and the working class, it makes no difference that additional laborers are employed by means of the unpaid labor of the previously employed laborers. The capitalist may even convert the additional capital into a machine that throws the producers of that capital out of work, and that replaces them by a few children. In every case, the working class creates, by the surplus labor of one year, the capital destined to employ additional labor in the following year. And this is what is called creating capital out of capital. Footnote. Labor creates capital before capital employs labor. E.G. Wakefield, England and America, London, 1833, Volume 2, page 110. End note. The accumulation of the first additional capital of two thousand pounds presupposes a value of ten thousand pounds belonging to the capitalist by virtue of his primitive labor, and advanced by him. The second additional capital of four hundred pounds presupposes, on the contrary, only the previous accumulation of the two thousand pounds, of which the four hundred pounds is the surplus value capitalized. The ownership of past unpaid labor is thenceforth the sole condition for the appropriation of living unpaid labor on a constantly increasing scale. 
the more the capitalist has accumulated, the more he is able to accumulate. In so far as the surplus value, of which the additional capital, number one, consists, is the result of the purchase of labor-power, with part of the original capital, a purchase that conform to the laws of the exchange of commodities, and that, from a legal standpoint, presupposes nothing beyond the free disposal, on the part of the laborer, of his own capacities, and on the part of the owner of money or commodities, of the values that belong to him, in so far as the additional capital, number two, etc., is the mere result of number one, and therefore a consequence of the above conditions, in so far as each single transaction invariably conforms to the laws of the exchange of commodities, the capitalist buying labor-power, the laborer selling it, and we will assume at its real value, in so far as all this is true, it is evident that the laws of appropriation, or of private property, laws that are based on the production and circulation of commodities, become by their own inner and inexorable dialectic changed into their very opposite. The exchange of equivalents, the original operation with which we started, has now become turned around in such a way that there is only an apparent exchange. This is owing to the fact that, first, that the capital which is exchanged for labor-power is itself but a portion of the product of others' labor, appropriated without an equivalent, and secondly, that this capital must not only be replaced by its producer, but replaced together with an added surplus. The relation of exchange subsisting between capitalist and laborer becomes a mere semblance appertaining to the process of circulation, a mere form foreign to the real nature of the transaction, and only mystifying it. The ever-repeated purchase and sale of labor-power is now the mere form. What really takes place is this. The capitalist again and again appropriates, without equivalent, a portion of the previously materialized labor of others, and exchanges it for a greater quantity of living labor. At first the rights of property seem to us to be based on a man's own labor. At last some such assumption was necessary, since only commodity owners with equal rights confronted each other, and the sole means by which a man could become possessed of the commodities of others was by alienating his own commodities, and these could be replaced by labor alone. Now, however, property turns out to be the right, on the part of the capitalist, to appropriate the unpaid labor of others or its product, and to be the impossibility, on the part of the laborer, of appropriating his own product. The separation of property from labor has become the necessary consequence of a law that apparently originated in their identity. Footnote. The property of the capitalist in the product of the labor of others is a strict consequence of the law of appropriation, the fundamental principle of which was, on the contrary, the exclusive title of every laborer to the product of his own labor. Cher Boulier's Richesse sous pauvreté, Paris, 1841, page 58, where, however, the dialectical reversal is not properly developed. End note. Therefore, however much the capitalist mode of appropriation may seem to fly in the face of the original laws of commodity production, it nevertheless arises, not from a violation, but, on the contrary, from the application of these laws. Let us make this clear once more by briefly reviewing the consequent phases of motion whose culminating point is capitalist accumulation. Footnote. The following passage, to page 551, Laws of Capitalist Appropriation, has been added to the English text in conformity with the fourth German edition. End note. 
We saw, in the first place, that the original conversion of a sum of values into capital was achieved in complete accordance with the laws of exchange. One party to the contract sells his labor-power, the other buys it. The former receives the value of his commodity, whose use-value, labor, is thereby alienated to the buyer. Means of production, which already belong to the latter, are then transformed by him, with the aid of labor equally belonging to him, into a new product which is likewise lawfully his. The value of this product includes, first, the value of the used-up means of production. Useful labor cannot consume these means of production without transferring their value to the new product. But, to be saleable, labor-power must be capable of supplying useful labor in the branch of industry in which it is to be employed. The value of the new product further includes the equivalent of the value of the labor-power, together with a surplus value. This is so because the value of the labor-power, sold for a definite length of time, say a day, a week, etc., is less than the value created by its use during that time. But the worker has received payment for the exchange value of his labor-power, and by doing so has alienated its use-value, this being the case in every sale and purchase. The fact that this particular commodity, labor-power, possesses the peculiar use-value of supplying labor, and therefore of creating value, cannot affect the general law of commodity production. If, therefore, the magnitude of value advanced in wages is not merely found again in the product, but is found there augmented by a surplus value, this is not because the seller has been defrauded, for he has really received the value of his commodity. It is due solely to the fact that this commodity has been used up by the buyer. The law of exchange requires equality only between the exchange values of the commodities given in exchange for one another. From the very outset it presupposes even a difference between their use values, and it has nothing whatever to do with their consumption, which only begins after the deal is closed and executed. Thus the original conversion of money into capital is achieved in the most exact accordance with the economic laws of commodity production, and with the right of property derived from them. Nevertheless, its result is, one, that the product belongs to the capitalist and not to the worker, two, that the value of this product includes, besides the value of the capital advanced, a surplus value which costs the worker labor but the capitalist nothing, and which none the less becomes the legitimate property of the capitalist, three, that the worker has retained his labor power and can sell it anew if he can find a buyer. Simple reproduction is only the periodical repetition of this first operation. Each time money is converted afresh into capital. Thus the law is not broken. On the contrary, it is merely enabled to operate continuously. Several successive acts of exchange have only made the last represent the first. Sismondi, Nouveau Principes, etc., page 70. And yet we have seen that simple reproduction suffices to stamp this first operation, in so far as it is conceived as an isolated process with a totally changed character. Of those who share the national income among themselves, the one side, the workers, acquire every year a fresh right to their share by fresh work. The others, the capitalists, have already acquired, by work done originally, a permanent right to their share. Sismondi, 1st C, page 110 and 111. It is indeed notorious that the sphere of labor is not the only one in which primogeniture works miracles. Nor does it matter if simple reproduction is replaced by reproduction on an extended scale by accumulation. In the former case, the capitalist squanders the whole surplus value in dissipation, 
In the latter he demonstrates his bourgeois virtue by consuming only a portion of it and converting the rest into money. The surplus value is his property. It has never belonged to anyone else. If he advances it for the purposes of production, the advances made come from his own funds, exactly as on the day when he first entered the market. The fact that on this occasion the funds are derived from the unpaid labor of his workers makes absolutely no difference. If worker B is paid out of the surplus value which worker A produced, then in the first place A furnished that surplus value without having the just price of his commodity cut by a halfpenny, and in the second place the transaction is of no concern of B's whatever. Whatever B claims, and has a right to claim, is that the capitalist should pay him the value of his labor power. Both were still gainers, the worker, because he was advanced the fruits of his labor, should read, of the unpaid labor of other workers, before the work was done, should read, before his own labor had borne fruit. The employer, le matre, because the labor of this worker was worth more than his wages, should read, produced more value than the value of his wages. Sismondi, 1st C, page 135. To be sure, the matter looks quite different if we consider capitalist production in the uninterrupted flow of its renewal, and if in place of the individual capitalist and the individual worker, we view in their totality the capitalist class and the working class confronting each other. But in so doing we should be applying the standards entirely foreign to commodity production. Only buyer and seller, mutually independent, face each other in commodity production. The relations between them cease on the day when the term stipulated in the contract they concluded expires. If the transaction is repeated, it is repeated as the result of a new agreement, which has nothing to do with the previous one, and which only by chance brings the same seller together again with the same buyer. If, therefore, commodity production, or one of its associated processes, is to be judged according to its own economic laws, we must consider each act of exchange by itself apart from any connection with the act of exchange preceding it and that following it. And since sales and purchases are negotiated solely between particular individuals, it is not admissible to seek cure for relations between whole social classes. However long a series of periodical reproductions and preceding accumulations the capital functioning today may have passed through, it always preserves its original virginity. So long as the laws of exchange are observed in every single act of exchange, the mode of appropriation can be completely revolutionized, without in any way affecting the property rights which correspond to commodity production. These same rights belong in force both at the outset, when the product belongs to its producer, who, in exchanging equivalent for equivalent, can enrich himself only by his own labor, and also in the period of capitalism, when social wealth becomes to an ever-increasing degree the property of those who are in a position to appropriate continually and ever afresh the unpaid labor of others. This result becomes inevitable from the moment there is a free sale, by the laborer himself, of labor power as a commodity. But it is also only from then onwards that commodity production is generalized and becomes the typical form of production. It is only from then onwards that from the first every product is produced for sale and all wealth produced goes through the sphere of circulation. Only when and where waged labor is its basis does commodity production impose itself upon society as a whole, but only then and there does it unfold all its hidden potentialities. 
To say that the supervention of wage labor adulterates commodity production is to say that commodity production must not develop if it is to remain unadulterated. To the extent that commodity production, in accordance with its own inherent laws, develops further into capitalist production, the property laws of commodity production change into the laws of capitalist appropriation. Footnote. We may well, therefore, feel astonished at the cleverness of Proudhon, who would abolish capitalistic property by enforcing the eternal laws of property that are based on commodity production. End note. We have seen that even in the case of simple reproduction, all capital, whatever its original source, becomes converted into accumulated capital, capitalized surplus value. But in the flood of production, all the capital originally advanced becomes a vanishing quantity, magnitudo evanescence in the mathematical sense, compared with the directly accumulated capital, i.e., with the surplus value or surplus product that is reconverted into capital, whether it functions in the hands of its accumulator or in those of others. Hence, political economy describes capital in general as accumulated wealth, converted surplus value or revenue, that is employed over again in the production of surplus value, and the capitalist as the owner of surplus value. It is merely another way of expressing the same thing to say that all existing capital is accumulated or capitalized interest, for interest is a mere fragment of surplus value. Footnote. Capital, viz., accumulated wealth employed with a view to profit. Malthus, first C. Capital consists of wealth saved from revenue and used with a view to profit. R. Jones, an introductory letter on political economy, London, 1833, page 16. End note. Note. The possessors of surplus produce, or capital, the source and remedy of the national difficulties, a letter to Lord John Russell, London, 1821, and note. Note. Capital, with compound interest on every portion of capital saved, is so all-engrossing that all the wealth in the world from which income is derived has long ago become the interest on capital. London, Economist, 19th July, 1851, end note. End of chapter 24, section 1.